This is the Life at Work podcast, an initiative of City Bible Forum. The Life at Work podcast is produced by City Bible Forum. To find out more, go to citybibleforum.org slash lifeatwork. Hi, I'm Andrew Laird and welcome to the podcast where we meet real workers wrestling with real workplace issues. Today, workplace burnout, how to avoid it and how to recover from it. It was that one particular day where I remember sitting there and really having strong thoughts of I'm not I'm not giving anything to anybody, you know, what's the purpose of me being here? And would anyone, would it be a loss if I were not here anymore? And coming to those thoughts was that point where I finally recognised that, no, there is something wrong. My guest today is Dr Amy Imms, medical doctor, author and founder of The Burnout Project. I'm Andrew Laird and this is the Life at Work podcast. Burnout has long been a problem impacting Australians in the workplace. But in the wake of the COVID pandemic, its prevalence has skyrocketed, with one major 2022 study finding Australia has the highest level of work burnout in the world. Now, Dr Amy Ems knows what it's like to burn out, the overwhelm and the loneliness associated with it. But she also knows what it's like to recover And these days, that's what's filling her working hours, running the Burnout Project, giving hope to others who have burnt out. So to discuss all that and more, welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you so much for having me here. Wonderful to chat to you about a very uh, important topic and one which impacts many people, if not personally, those who are listening, then people that they know. Um, Look, Amy, I mentioned that 2022 study there, which found Australian workers suffer a, a higher level of work burnout than anywhere else in the world. Just how big a problem is it here? Yeah, it's, it's a massive problem. So since it was first formally described in our literature nearly 50 years ago, it's been recognised as a really significant issue and we've only seen it increase as an issue over time as we've understood it more and got more data on it. And certainly over the last few years, as we've seen the pandemic and the effects of that, we've seen it increase even more. So it varies depending on individuals and which sectors we're looking at and what point in time and how we're measuring it. But often we're seeing rates that are well over 50%, often 70% or higher. And then if we're looking at some specific roles and specific industries, then we can get rates that are up around 80 or 90%. Mm. So it's a huge issue. And that's both for those individuals who are experiencing it, that impact. And then if we also look at that impact on organisations and workplaces, then we see that ripple effect and how big an impact it has overall. Mm. Mm. So this is a big deal. <laughs> this is affecting uh, Australian workers in a, in a significant way. And um, we'll, we'll explore a little bit more of the Australian context in, in a moment, but just let's start with some definitions. I've been using this word burnout, but, but what exactly do we mean by burnout and how do we know if we or someone else is suffering from it? It's a really good question because it's something that isn't necessarily well agreed Mm. upon. There are lots of different definitions out there. So the most recent really formal one that people might have heard of is the World Health Organization, one that came out a few years ago now. And they essentially define it as the response to chronic workplace stress that hasn't been successfully managed. Now, they particularly refer to the workplace. That's because of how they're fitting it into a classification system. I think most people who work in this area would pretty... 
happily recognise that we see it in all sorts of circumstances. So whether you're studying or volunteering or a parent or carer, we can see burnout in any kind of primary context that we have. Mm. But it's that ongoing result of stress that hasn't been successfully managed and then it results in three key Mm -hmm. features. So the first one being exhaustion. So we're tired all the time, we're exhausted, we don't have any energy, we're often not sleeping particularly well. The second one we see is depersonalisation. So this is where we start to reduce our ability to feel compassion and empathy Mm. towards others. We might withdraw, we might feel guilt and cynicism, these kinds of things. Uh, And then the third one is a feeling of reduced efficacy. So we might actually not be doing as well in our role as we usually Mm. are because of all those things that I've just Mm. talked about. We're tired and we're not concentrating as well and we're irritable. But also there's often a really strong sense that we just feel like we're not. So if I asked your colleagues um, or your boss or somebody around you, they might say, no, they're doing great, haven't noticed anything wrong, they're still showing up and doing their work Mm. really well. But if I talk to that individual, they might say, what am I even doing here? What's what's the point in this? I'm no good at this. Other people would do a better job than I would. So those are those three features that we tend Mm, to look for. mm. And you mentioned there the relationship between colleagues and and individuals and how colleagues might not see it. Is it something that um, you find that people can often mask very well or are there other instances where people the individual who is burning out is blind to it and the people around them are the ones who can see it yeah we see both Mm. of those things happen so sometimes the people who uh, show it more it gets picked up earlier and dealt with in one way Mm. or another either they're not coping in that role and they they leave Um, or something else happens. Whereas often the problem is that we see very capable, resilient people who can very well mask it when they're in those specific circumstances. So they can show up to work and be fine. But if you saw them in the car before or after work or at home outside of work, if you could see Mm. that, you might very clearly see that there is something very, very wrong. But for those smaller periods of time, they can behave very normally. Mm. Um, And yes, the other is the case as well that we often see, whether that's colleagues or even more often it's people closer to them. So it's a spouse or a family member who sees what they really like and they're recognising that something isn't right Mm. here, but that individual might be a little bit in denial about that, I suppose, that it's, it's not a nice way to feel. Often there are really big Uh, senses of shame or embarrassment or inadequacy that are tied Mm. to this and so often those become some of those barriers to actually recognizing that i myself am burning Mm. out Mm. amy look we've been talking about burnout out there but if we could personalize it just for a moment now you're a doctor you're an author you're a mother of five (laughs) i just feel exhausted uh, thinking about all of that Um, (laughs) but you like i have have experienced burnout I wonder if you could share a little bit of your story. When did you burn out? What were the the factors which caused it? And what was the whole experience like for you? Yeah, and I think my story is probably very similar to a lot of people's Mm. stories in that it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing that often what happens is if when we have one challenge in life, we can handle Mm. that. But it's this cumulative um, result of lots of different things that just happened to happen at the same time. And so for me, I was working as a breadwinner for my family, working part-time as a Mm. GP. I was also trying to start studying for exams, but I had four children at that stage um, who were all very small and not sleeping very much. So I was trying to work and try to find time to study with the very limited Mm. (laughs) space and time that I had. Uh, I had a very unwell mother who I was supporting. I had health issues myself. 
uh, around the same time, I then had a patient who took their own life. So it was all these cumulative factors. And the result of that is that I eventually realized that I felt like I was failing everywhere, mm. that there was no area of life where I could see that I was doing something good and contributing um, and getting any kind of sense of, of satisfaction from that. But I was in denial in that way that we were talking about before as well. And so it took a long time for me to really recognise that. So probably about five or six months of this going on before I realised what was happening and I took a period of leave from work at Mm. that point. How how did you recognise it? Were there people who pointed it out to you or was it something that, you you know, you came to a realisation of yourself? Look, there were people close to me who could see that I was struggling mm. and pointed it out to some degree. I don't think they really recognised that it was more than just the normal stresses and challenges of life, though, because I think I am one of those people who can mask mm. it very well. So it really wasn't until I myself came to that recognition. Mm. Mm. Um, And it was, like I was describing before, it was that one particular day where I remember sitting there and really having strong thoughts of I'm not, I'm not giving anything to anybody. Mm. You know, what's the purpose of me being here? And would anyone, would it be a loss if I were not here Mm. anymore? And coming to those thoughts was that point where I finally recognised that, no, there is something wrong. Because we make so many excuses and justifications about other ways that we feel. You know, if we're struggling, we think, oh, but everybody struggles. You know, life's hard for anybody. Um, I should be able to deal with it. X, Y and Z person who I know can deal with it just fine. So I should be able to as well. All these things that just keep us going and thinking, no, I, um, I, I shouldn't stop or I shouldn't have mm, to stop. Mm. And when you came to this realisation that, hey, look, things aren't right, there is something um, not right here, something that needs addressing, were there people around you who, who said things, did things that were particularly helpful? And, and on the flip side, were there things that people said or did that really uh, were hurtful and, and, and worsened the pain? Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, there were people who were supportive in a, you know, a comforting, kind kind of way. And that was nice that people recognise that you're struggling and want to be there for you. Uh, When it came to actually trying to get insights into burnout itself and trying to get professional support, I found that difficult. I found that I could find lots of well-meaning people and people who were supportive in what they said and tried to do, but the reality of the services and things that I was offered was that they felt like they were much more directed at anxiety and depression Mm. and things like that specifically as opposed to burnout which I at the time didn't recognize that it's because it's quite a different experience that I needed a different approach to that but in retrospect and over time I realized that that was what was going Mm. on Um, so yes there were lots of people that were supportive Um, I, I think a lot of the time some of those struggles and the unsupportiveness was actually my own internalization right. of that. It was yeah. my interpretation of what people were thinking and feeling. Um, and certainly because I got to a point where I decided not to go back to general practice. So that was a very difficult mm. thing for me to go through and process and come to terms with and certainly had a lot of people who just couldn't understand that. You know, why why wouldn't you go back? This is a great job and, and you've got so much mm. there. And that was that was not helpful because there wasn't a lot of understanding of why I might make that decision. Mm. But sort of looking at it from a more um, outsider perspective, I suppose, where you don't understand what it's like every day in those yeah, jobs. Yeah, 
uh, you're right. We can put so much pressure on ourselves. We can be our own, own worst enemy. Um, but obviously, you have come through that. So what what helped? Uh, how did you recover? Or or is recovery even the right word? Is it more about um, management in some way so that this doesn't all happen again? Yeah, and, and I think you're right that it's not recovery as such that we're aiming for, that it's always this lifelong process of we always have different stresses and challenges that come our way. And so it's developing a bit of a toolkit of strategies that we have that we can then continue to utilise and put in place and draw upon as we need them. And not just having the strategies to respond, but the ability and that self-awareness to recognise that the problem's there in the first Mm. place. Because as I said, you know, that can take a while. And for me, it took at least six months. And for some people, it takes years or decades. So noticing when is that um, going downhill and what can I do Mm. about it? And so for me, it, it took almost as long so at least six months to come out of that and that first part of it was accessing support which is vital and I always encourage people to Mm. do that that seeing your GP and getting an assessment of how bad is this is this something where we can just slowly work through it or can um, you know do you need to take six weeks off work immediately Mm. Do you need some kind of support today or tomorrow urgently or can you see somebody next week? So seeing somebody is really important and so I did that, excluding other diagnoses. So at that point for me it was just burnout but actually the next time I got severe fatigue a couple of years later it turned out that I had a really bad iron deficiency anemia Mm. as well. So that's always really important to do as well. So I did that and um, started accessing some psych support like I mentioned but felt that it wasn't really directed at what I Mm. needed. And then the next part of the recovery where I actually started to make what I felt was significant process was in large part a self-directed thing that I was fortunate that I had the educational background and that sort of medical knowledge and psychological interest and the support around me that I had the mental energy to do it to really investigate this in detail and learn a lot about it and learn what should I be Mm. doing and to seek out that support from others as well and so it was in a more informal way that I would come across people who could offer small amounts of support Mm. Mm. Uh, and and a lot of that was just validation that really feeling like you're being heard and understood was a huge thing that I think is actually often really really hard to find and permission to make changes if that's what I felt like I wanted or needed to do. Mm. And I think I felt like I internally needed that permission from others because there's a lot of judgment and questioning, like I mentioned Mm. before, but then also from myself because we also have a lot of rigid rules and expectations around ourselves. So it was that validation and permission that were probably the two key things that really allowed me to start moving through and get back in touch with, um, you know, exercising regularly and being creative again and making sure that I actually had time to go and see my friends. So all these other sides of it that came out mm. of that were then part of that longer process of recovery. And, and how long is this longer process that you're describing there from, you know, the time that you recognise something is not right to... I guess a point where you would say I've recovered or I'm at least able to to function as I you know I'd like to be able to again. I'd say that I was back to a pretty good level of function within about okay. 6 months. Yep. But then a lot of working through the finer parts of that 
went on for one to two years right. after that. So it took a much longer process. I mean, we're always growing, so it's yes. hard to put an exact the time limit on, on it. it. You know, yes. I still say now I'm learning and, and developing new strategies and always sort of changing in that area. But I would say that that mirrors pretty closely what I see with a lot of my mm. patients, that we get this faster recovery initially mm. and then we get this slower but the that slower longer part is in a lot of ways the more important bit because that first bit makes you feel a mm. lot better but it's that second part that really gets you to the point that you can make big decisions if they need to be made um to really get on top of that self-awareness and those strategies so that the next time it hits we've got mm. that there whereas if we just do that first bit and then we go oh great i'm feeling a bit better now i probably don't need to do any of this stuff anymore i can leave all of it then we haven't really got to that point that the next time something hits we can know how to respond to that in a more helpful mm, way mm. now you mentioned a moment ago that when you burnt out uh, you struggled to find resources that were particularly tailored to help people in this situation and that then led you into creating the the burnout project uh, you didn't want others to have to try and, and recover alone so just tell us what is the burnout project what does it do so we're trying to address burnout specifically, as you say. So a lot of people with burnout do also have other things going on, like depression or anxiety, for example. So it's often part of a team approach that I'll have patients who are also seeing a GP and a psychologist for other things, and then I help them with that burnout-specific part. So for individuals, then I do their burnout counselling, so really helping people to work through those issues and develop those strategies that they need. Um, I have group programs as well, which I find could be one of the most powerful things that I do because they're developing those strategies and working through things, but also really hearing other people's experiences that, that validation and really that seeing that it's, yeah, mm, it's that validation mm. and seeing, oh, gee, other people have that exact same thought process that I do and that same struggle. Because as much as we can tell people intellectually, it's not just you and lots of people mm. think that. There's a little part of our brain that goes, oh, but it kind of is yeah, just me. Yeah. <laughs> and so until we hear it, we often don't really actually yeah, believe it. Yeah. So that's another big part of what I do. And then it's that broader education as well, because I don't just want to help individuals, but a bigger part of that is can we actually prevent this? Can we do something about this from a workplace and society level? So I also work with workplaces and with the community to try to make those bigger changes mm -hmm. as well. And what have been some of the responses from people who've found support from the Burnout Project? Uh, uh, where have they come from? What have their backgrounds been? And, um, and, and, and yeah, how have they responded in light of the support you've offered? It's been a very broad group of people that I've worked with over mm. the years. Because of my work and my, so my medical background and the connections that I've got through that in my counselling and group programs, I have had a um, dominant group of doctors and health professionals. And so I've really been able to see how much they've struggled and especially through these last years of the pandemic with just huge pressures that they've been under. And they're an interesting group to work with because they also often have very limited control over their work mm. environment. And so we're often stuck with a, a, a limited area that we can work with. And so it's really about going, where do we actually have scope to do something about this and what can we do? And so to see people in that who feel so hopeless and helpless to begin with that there is nothing I can change here, to see them over that period of months to actually realizing that actually this has got better that i have been able to do things that have improved this and i enjoy going to work now or i've got to a place where i've been able to make that decision that i'm going to make a change or i'm going to really stick to some stronger boundaries and things like that has been really 
encouraging and heartwarming to see. Uh, one of the other big groups that I see a lot of is people who are senior in their organisation. So senior managers, CEOs, principals, um, politicians, people in council, all of these roles are really difficult because you've got high pressures and lots of responsibility, Mm. but also a high degree of kind of being in the public eye or having having a lot of people looking to you and relying on you so there's that feeling that there is no one i can talk to about this that i'm here to support all the people who i'm taking care of you know in this organization but who's there to look after me who can i even talk to without damaging my reputation or making myself too vulnerable Mm, in some way mm. and so often they end up in my groups because they need some kind of safe space to open up but really it's across every sector you know i see people in it and government work and education and everywhere across every sector and it seems like also across i guess all of the different levels of the workplace both as you say those people in Mm -hmm. the the ceo the leadership roles that are obviously under huge amounts of pressure but equally as you said the the people who um, perhaps are lower down the pecking order in the workplace so much so that they don't feel like they've got any freedom or flexibility to to be able to make the kind of changes they need is that right yeah, that's exactly right. And so sometimes if I'm doing a comprehensive kind of program for a workplace, then we might actually split it mm. up like that. So I'll run a series of workshops that are for those frontline workers, series of workshops for those people in management positions that are minimum management, and then those for those in leadership mm. as well. Mm. So it can Im- impact people right across the board and right across all the different sectors. Mm. There's lots more I'm keen to explore with you, including what some of the early warning signs of a burnout might be, how we might avoid it, uh, and also how you're Christian faith plays into this work that you do. But we're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll consider some of those questions. You've heard of IQ and EQ, but what about your EVQ? Grow in your evangelism quotient, or EVQ, so you know what to say and when to say it when you're sharing your faith. It's like IQ, but for your evangelism. Wherever you are in your evangelism journey, join one of our tailor-made programs with your own personal mentor. Find out more today at evq.org.au. Welcome back. Amy, I'd like to reflect a little bit more now on the Australian context at the moment. I was uh, reading an interview recently with a high-profile radio presenter who was stepping back from her role because of health and uh, family pressures, and and she said this in the interview. This was the quote. We're getting better at recognising post-pandemic what we actually have to do to put in the right things for a good life. And reading between the lines, it seemed as though she was saying, I've got too much on and I recognise, and it's okay to admit, that's the case and I need to step back. So, in your experience, and given how prevalent burnout is in Australia, are we getting better at taking the steps that we need to to care for ourselves? And what do you see are the the key factors at work in our culture that mean we have such widespread burnout? Yes and no. Mm. I think we're seeing burnout talked a lot uh, about a lot more and we're seeing a lot more suggestions of things that we should be doing. If we look at workplaces, often there are a lot more 
workshops and well-being um, interventions, mm. I suppose, to encourage people to take care of themselves. However, the implementation and the results of those that we want to see aren't necessarily happening. So they are in little pockets, but sometimes what we see is an organisation will quite literally in the same breath say, hey, you need to be looking after yourselves oh, but we've got a real shortage hmm. this week and who can come in and do extra shifts. So it's it's is it just a tick-the-box thing to show that we care or are we actually informing our day-to-day practices of how staff are treated, how workloads are treated, You know, all those underlying decisions that are made as a business, is it actually informing those in a way that can make a real difference for people? And I think that's really mm, important. Mm. And in terms of you know, what, why is this yeah, why is such, a such a hard thing in, in our Australia? society? Yeah, and... Um, I guess in any Western country, in any country at all probably, there are so many pressures in terms of economics and just surviving and dealing with the the fallout of the pandemic and all these things that although in theory we might like to think, hey, look, let's have more manageable workloads and shorter deadlines, when it actually comes to it, there are often economic pressures there that make that really difficult Mm. to do. Now, there are ways around that to make it much more achievable and that's where I think there's it's a knowledge gap that people feel like, well, there is nothing I can do and so throw your hands up in the air and there is nothing we can really do. Um, so, for an example, one thing that really drives burnout in workplaces is workload. Mm. Okay, so sometimes we can do something about that. Sometimes the workload is actually quite fixed for whatever reasons there are. Uh, sometimes we can redistribute it. So, often what we'll see is that on a team there will be one or two people who are particularly capable and reliable and either consciously or subconsciously they end up taking on most of the load of that Mm. team because who are you going to ask? If you want something done, they're the people you're going to ask. So you might not have thought, let's give them extra work, but it just ends up happening. So if we can be more conscious of things like that, we may be able to redistribute it a little bit. Uh, but often there's not a lot we can do. But that doesn't mean that then there's nothing we can do to solve the burnout problem. We can look at some of those other really strong elements in workplaces like autonomy, that if there's a way that we can give people a little bit more control over what they do or how they do it, then we're going to reduce rates of burnout. It might be the sense of reward. We might not be able to pay them more money, but there might be other kinds of reward that they can get from their job that we might be able mm. to change. It might be the communication. We might make decisions that are detrimental to certain groups of our employees for example and we might need to make that decision but how and when we communicate that can make a really big difference in terms of how they're going to respond mm. to that so i think it's it's informing people and and especially working with people who are in leadership positions to show that even though there are these fixed things that you do not have a lot of control over there's still a lot you can do to change people's experience mm. Mm. Amy, they say that prevention's better than cure. So, what are some of the simple things that each of us can be doing individually to um, prevent burning out? Uh, what are some of the warning signs that we're on a, a dangerous trajectory and we need to we need to adjust? And I think that's the first thing about preventing it is recognising those warning signs. And the warning signs are a little bit different for all of us. So if we look back at those key things that I talked about before, that exhaustion and depersonalisation and reduced efficacy, so we can watch out for those. You know, we all get tired sometimes, but is this tiredness that's really persisting that I should look into Mm. more? We all get grumpy sometimes, but 
actually, am I just really grumpy all the time and don't feel like engaging? Uh, one of the big ones I see in healthcare workers is that compassion for others that they might, you know, normally really care for their patients and colleagues, but they find themselves just not caring as much as they used mm. to. So watching out for those. And then there's this kind of other layer of more secondary consequences, which then result from that. So that irritability and withdrawing might result in a relationship mm. breakdown. Mm those difficult feelings we might try to find a way to cope with that uh, because that doesn't feel very good so we might try to escape or distract in some way so we might start drinking more alcohol or watching more tv or playing more computer games or uh, binge eating or online shopping whatever those things are that give us some kind of dopamine hit or distract us from those other issues Mm. yeah and so those might be what we look out for it might be that you realize for you it's that sign might be that when our glass of wine once a week turns into a bottle of wine every Mm. night (laughs) is that signal but you know we want to pick it up as early as possible so it's just noticing even when you get that temptation to have the second glass might be that sign to go oh hang on a minute i remember this has happened Mm. before is there something behind this or or not what's going Mm. on here so keep a really close eye out for that another really big group of symptoms to watch out for for recognizing the early signs is our general cognitive function so if you feel like you're forgetting things more easily and not able to concentrate as easily as you normally Mm. do um, then that's a really good Mm. thing to look out for and you mentioned before part of what was a factor for you burning out was just the compounding of all sorts of major life events sort of coming coming together all at once is, is that's something as well i presume that we could be looking ahead and and being aware of look i've got you know a moving house and i'm doing this and changing job and and so there's the circumstances that are on the horizon that might also contribute to me burning out Yes. And so, look, one of the the workshops that I often run with people is creating a bit of a burnout plan. So, it's a bit of a summary of how am I going to actually manage this? And you asked before, what are some of those things that we can start doing Mm. about it in terms of prevention? And there are so many different things that we can do. And so, I'd break it down into three groups. We've got one, what's going on outside of us and how we interact with things around us. So, our support networks, how we get along with our colleagues, who's there for us. Uh, how we set our boundaries, you know, do we let people push us around or do we sit strong in our boundaries? How do we separate work and home life or do we think about work all the time? So there's that. How do we relate to what's around us? Then what's going on inside our mind? Mm. So how do we respond to stress? Do we have space for creativity and fun and those kinds of things? Do we have a lot of imposter syndrome? Um, what do we do there? Perfectionism is another really big one, a really big driver of burnout. And then the third area I get people to think about is our physical well-being, which is so closely linked to our mm. mental well-being. So what are we like in terms of our nutrition, our exercise and our mm. sleep? So if we identify something that we can do in each of those three areas and keep it up and small things, much better off doing small things that we can do regularly than big mm. things. Because then getting back to your question now about knowing those big things are coming up is then we want to anticipate that so we kind of always anticipate it obviously things Mm. come out of the blue but often we know you know i'm going to get a promotion or i'm going to have this big heavy workload something's going to change i'm going to move house then we want to look back at okay what are those little things that i'm doing in those areas and i know i'm going to have a hard time so how can i make sure that i can keep those things going or maybe even increase it are there extra sources of support or extra things that i can make sure that i'm doing leading up to and during that period they're going to that are going to keep me going and obviously they have to be achievable especially if that's going to be a super mm. busy period we don't want to be 
running marathons, mm, mm. <laughs> but we want to be finding something that we can do that we, we actually have the mental and physical energy to do that keeps us going through and those to, times. And to recognise all of those things, um, presumably we need to actually um, create or have the space to actually to actually think. And so presumably that's another um, a factor as well too, that if we're not resting and actually taking time to um, reflect on what's going on in our life, how we're responding to situations, um, that's that's going to be problematic for us as well, I guess. That's right. I mean, you know, that's a rest is work. Like rest gives us that capacity to have that creativity and thought and bigger mm. picture part of it. And I was saying before that often when I'm working people with burnout, there's that first phase of recovery and then we get into that longer phase. Well, that's partly why I break it into those two parts because often in that first phase, there's a lot of that thinking capacity that isn't mm. there. People are struggling too much to really be able to engage in some of that until they get through that first phase of recovery and then they've got a whole different perspective on things and a different way of thinking about mm. things. Mm. Now, Amy, you're a Christian person, so I want to think about factors in burning out that might be specific to Christians. So, Christians, we follow a saviour who did not come to be served, but to serve, a saviour who gave himself for us. And so, an inherent part of the Christian life is to be someone who who gives themselves for others, who pours themselves out in service of others. So, how do we be that kind of person and not burn out? It's such a tricky thing because I think... I think as a Christian, you often feel called to give as much as you can. And so you push yourself or you feel like you should push yourself right to mm. that limit of if I could give more, then I should give more. And that I think we forget that we're human mm. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, have minds that can't cope with doing everything all the time we have bodies that break and and get sick and so we are also made to need rest and to not be able to do all those things and we look at those other things that we're called to do and when we're not called to give all the time we're called to meditate on scriptures Mm. and to show hospitality and to show love and so many other elements to it that i think make up that picture of um what what a christian life can Mm. be Uh, so i think keeping that in mind and and knowing what our limits are and having those conversations that sort of validation and community that we're talking about before i think when we talk through this when we get other people's perspectives, it's easier to see those things or remind ourselves of those things. Whereas when we're just getting caught up in our own mind, it's easier to get stuck in those high standards of what we should be able to achieve, mm-hmm. I think. You mentioned there we forget that we're human, that we have, have limitations. Are there Christian truths that perhaps you personally, uh, in hindsight, look back on and think, oh, I was forgetting that or even choosing to ignore that that truth that um, that then contributed to my my burning out truths about you know limitations or the need for rest or where you know your value and worth is found or or others i think i often like to think i don't need that much rest (laughs) (laughs) that i can i can keep going pretty pretty hard and i think a lot of people feel like that that ah you know i can i can do more i've got the capacity to do more so i should keep Mm. doing more and and then often it's too late by the time you realize i actually need to to rest now and 
that trust that we can put our worries and concerns on God, that we don't have to solve everything for ourselves. I think I often feel like I need to find all the solutions to my problems and that if I only do things right, then I can make life Mm. go right. And obviously we can't do that. I think also just getting stuck in, caught up in the everyday, that we can be so busy with work and parenting and we very quickly get pushed and pulled by other people's agendas and priorities. We often don't have a lot of time where we can step back and really reflect on just our whole Mm. life and that bigger picture of why are we doing what we're doing and ultimately why are we here, what's that meaning for our life and what do we want from life in that bigger way. And even when I'm talking to people who aren't Christian, getting that perspective can help them to just reassess their bigger decisions and um, really question why am I doing Mm. this and it's not just out of Mm. habit. Mm. Well, I want to ask you about that when you are talking with people who come uh, to the Burnout Project who you're um, supporting and helping walk through uh, their burnout and recovery from it. um, Are there some of these Christian truths that you find um, shaping the, the, the sort of support and help that you provide to them? I think the biggest one that I use very frequently is that last one that I mentioned of of really looking inward at what they want from life, that not just taking on what their colleagues or their boss or culture or their industry poses to them as being really important Mm. and pushes upon them, but having that inward reflection on is this actually what is important to me or not and where's that going to get me in you know 10 or 20 years like is this really big picture important or is this just July Mm. important or September Mm. important Um, so I think that's that's a really big one the other one that you talked about before like that need for rest and recognizing that we're just human again I think we all know that we're human but we have a part of us that likes to think that Mm. we're not and we can just do everything and be everything and that rest is maybe a weakness Mm. that we shouldn't have to do that if we could do everything right or be the best possible person that we could Mm. be but to see that we we do need Mm. rest Mm. look Amy a final question you've spoken quite a bit about community and how one of the important factors in recovery is that validation that uh, hey I'm not the only one going through this and I certainly think back to my experience of burning out and um, how liberating and how helpful it was for me when I would meet people who would describe what I was experiencing and thinking, oh, I'm not the only one. So so just to close, um, this idea of having a supportive community, uh, I think of the church being a place like that. So how can um, the people of God corporately um, be a supportive community to either prevent people who are part of that church community from burning out or, or helping people who have? It's a really big question that's been on my mind and heart mm. recently as my church works through how do we provide good pastoral care for our church and, and where does that come from and how do we care for one another? And especially because I think a lot of churches, well, our certainly has gone through phases where there was a phase when we all had quite a lot of capacity to provide for mm. one another. And then you feel like there's a phase where a lot of us have had sickness or lots of young children and felt like there's less capacity to do that. And so we've had to... Ad- 
adapt that over time, I suppose. So part of it is that constant revisiting and going, is this actually still working and do we need to change the way that we're doing things? And I think a really big part of it and the same in workplaces and with individuals is that Hmm. listening that often when we're the ones trying to figure out what do we do and how do we make this better, we can come up with all sorts of ideas, but we might hit the mark if we haven't really truly listened to what people's needs are and you know, what are their struggles mm. and noticing what what do they need reminding of and coming back to those Christian truths like you were talking about and making sure that we, we're practicing what we preach mm. as well. That, like I said before about workplaces, you know, we're not saying one thing in one breath and another thing with another. You know, if we're saying one thing to people about our capacity and our humanness, then does the way that we run our church rosters and things like that actually match up to that? Are we recognizing that we don't all have endless capacity to give everything we Mm. have? Mm. That's a wonderful note to to close on and um, certainly an encouragement, I think, for the the Christian community to be a place where people can find rest and refreshment and, um, I guess, freedom even from the the relentless grind of... uh, of life that is so often uh, thrown at us each each day. Amy, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like it's a, a really important conversation for us to have. And uh, if you're listening and want to get in touch with Amy or find out more about the Burnout Project, we'll have links to that in the show notes as well too. So you can get in touch with Amy and see a little bit more of the, the kind of support that she could offer you or others that you might know. So, but Amy, look, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, look, in our next episode, we're heading to the construction site. James Veltmeyer has had a varied career path from carpenter to youth pastor to now builder and small business owner. So we're going to explore how the Christian faith makes a difference in the trades. But until then, I'm Andrew Laird, and you've been listening to the Life at Work podcast. Enjoyed this podcast? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing and leaving a rating so others can find us too. Join us next time on the Life at Work podcast with Andrew Laird.